0: i think that for me is very different between when you are in classes because you are having all that theory versus like doing actual work I'm grateful
1: to have that kind of opportunity like while i'm in school you know and um, to have that like kind of hands-on stuff be part of my education
2: welcome to the nashman hive a podcast with george washington university's honey w nashman center for civic engagement and public service here We tell stories about transformational campus community partnerships. I'm Jordana, your Community Engaged Scholarship Coordinator. You just heard Diana Aguilera and Aaron Powell, who are the 2020 recipients of the Knapp Fellowship. Stephen and Diane Robinson Knapp established this fellowship for entrepreneurial service learning to recognize, reward, and facilitate creative public service and academic engagement. Community engaged projects range from academic research to documentary filmmaking. Through her connections at the Bocomoso Youth Center in Winterfeld, South Africa, Erin conducted a study on the impact of gender in the community. Though her original plan was to go to conduct this research herself, travel restrictions due to the COVID-19 pandemic changed her plans entirely, and an even more authentic project was born by partnering with people in the community who conducted the research themselves. Diana worked with La Clinica del Pueblo, a health center in Hyattsville, Maryland, and examined the impact of telehealth on the Latino community during this time. She worked through a range of challenges, from connecting to a community facing a multitude of barriers to healthcare, to reflecting on her own place as both an insider and an outsider in this community. With the COVID-19 pandemic, this year was unusual to say the least but it also provided openings to new ways of thinking about connecting with community. Let's hear how Diana and Erin worked through what it means to engage in a year defined by distance. The mission of the Honey W. Nashman Center is to integrate civic engagement into George Washington University's educational work. We promote equity, active citizenship in a diverse democracy, focus GW's resources to address community needs through reciprocal partnerships beyond the campus, and enhance teaching, learning, and scholarship at GW. All this lingo to say, how do we bring together education and engagement in a really authentic way and a sustainable way? And I'm excited because I think we have some really, really good examples of that. So a little bit about NAP. NAP fellows receive up to 10,000 to support their innovative ideas, to combine their scholarship with action. Students work with a faculty advisor and one or more community partners and spend one year conducting inquiry and implementing their idea. This scholarly work in many different disciplines is encouraged Um, You'll hear some great examples in a moment, but previous fellows have conducted social science research, created documentary films, design curriculum, and many other kinds of projects. Main values that we're looking at um, are this reciprocity, this mutual benefit. I'm learning, you're learning, we're both benefiting. There's equitable partnerships, there's co-creation, there's this sense that we are really creating together. we say this transformational versus transactional relationships. So again, that idea of working together. So I'll pass it over to to you, Erin, who's the senior in international affairs at the Elliott School um, to talk a little bit about your project. My
1: name is Erin Powell. Like I said, I'm I'm an international affairs student at Elliott. Um, I'm double minoring in theater and sustainability, and I have a focus in environmental. International Studies in 1999, um, when the Bokumosa Youth Foundation was founded. Um, So it was founded by a doctor living in Winterbelt, South Africa, um, which is a a township um, outside of Pretoria in South Africa. He was living in the township and he was actually held up at gunpoint with his family um, in his home by two youths in the community. Um, He was actually able to um, de-escalate that situation. Um, And instead of taking away like anger against youth from that experience, he instead switched that to kind of a determination to fill this hole um, that was in the systemic makeup of South Africa. What do I mean by that? Um, Apartheid era townships were created essentially um, when over 4 million Black South Africans were relocated outside of places where they were living that had become um, high value real estate for white Afrikaners to create segregated communities. Um, a lot of people were evicted to places like Winterbelt that um, before this happened were cow pasture. Those communities have remained and the systemic neglect has also remained. They've developed, but um, they still face many of the same issues that they faced when they started. Um, specifically in Winterbelt, unemployment rates are over 50%. HIV rates are over 20%. Um, the rates of crime, abuse, violence, um, early pregnancy are all too high, um, especially compared to relatively close proximity um, communities that are still segregated to this day. But that's not the only story of Bocomoso. So that's the story of the problem that they were trying to fix. But what the youth center really thrives off of in that community is the vibrance of the people there and the dreams of the youth that are living there who simply needed somewhere to go to learn. Um, One of the board members for this foundation was actually Leslie Jacobson, who was one of the heads of the theater department at GW. And out of That role that she played was born this really beautiful relationship between GW and the Bocamosa Youth Center. Um, The students would come during fundraising time to actually stay at at GW with students um, and do like a cultural exchange week and perform at the school. I um, hosted one of the students that came to GW in 2019, um, and we started to have conversations about our lives and about what it was like to be a woman in the places we were living in a lot of the conversation was similar. We both dealt with the fears of what it's like to be a woman walking around in the world and um, all that comes with that. But there were also things that were different and things that I started to hear coming up in a lot of different people's stories. Um, Not just my one friend, people talking about how men were more likely to just end up on the street doing drugs, about how women were extremely likely to just end up pregnant and not being able to fulfill all of the dreams that they had. And I started to realize how much gender was a focal point of um, a lot of these conversations underneath a lot of other problems. Um, And so I started to formulate this idea of, well, how is gender affecting already difficult socioeconomic advancement of youth within this community i wish that i had more quantitative data to show you but unfortunately covid made this study a lot longer than i ever anticipated but it also made it a lot better too Um, the part of the reason that i've been able to gather the data of all of these different components of this community that are feeding into the gender issues that are going on um, The reason that I've been able to get such raw and honest and really beautiful data honestly from interviews is because instead of going to South Africa as I had originally planned and actually doing the interviews myself, COVID required that we rethink things and that I actually hire two people within the community, Steve um, Beloy and Doreen Manisi who are two incredible um, community partners and leaders um to actually do those interviews and to do our group discussions and to carry out the field work i did not realize at the time that i did that what an incredibly smart decision that would be and how thankful i would be for covid kind of forcing me to do that because i know that the quality of data that we have and the stories that i will have to tell about all of these different themes that are playing out um, and adding to the pressures that youth are already feeling in this community and some of the potential ways that we could evolve how we're thinking about gender in these communities and how we address these
2: issues. Um, It's enhanced that so much. Thank you so much, Erin. That was really awesome to hear about your work a little bit more in depth and the different kind of transformations that it's had to go through. And obviously COVID being a pretty major, (laughs) pretty major change, right? For everyone. But, but I think always when it comes to community engaged work, there's always going to be a lot of changes and flexibility and kind of environmental things. So I think this is an awesome um, just showcase of that openness and flexibility in ways that sometimes these challenges Um, actually create openings.
0: All right. Um, Thank you, Jordana, for that. Um, My name is Diana Aguilera, for those that you don't know me. um, I am a master uh, part-time student at the Trachtenberg School focusing on immigration and and health. So The reason that I decided to do this um, fellowship, this not fellowship was for two things. The first one it was that um, I used to live in New York City and then I moved to Maryland back in 2018 to start with my master's program. And something that I realized it was that in the DMV area um, and especially uh, in Maryland, the people from El Salvador from where I'm coming from, they are one of the highest populations in Maryland. And I was a little bit shocked because in New York City we had a melting pot and having those experiences from coming from a big city into this um, DMV area of seeing a lot of Salvadorians, that was very shocking for me. Um, once the pandemic hit, also something that I realized it was that besides being in, in Heightsville, Maryland, where is predominantly Hispanic, there are a lot of barriers when it comes to medicine, when it comes to healthcare, and also uh, many intertwines between uh, the community centers, health centers, and the people living in High School. My research focuses on telemedicine and Latino approaches, but in order to understand a little bit how telemedicine works, I, I'm going to dive in into what is tele, telehealth and what is telemedicine. So prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, the use of telehealth and telemedicine was very minimal in the United States. And as the COVID pandemic hit, a lot of um, health insurances, policymakers, and also the health system make that available to limit uh, the transition of the COVID-19 coronavirus and also to reduce the exposure in health facilities. And there are some key differences between the two, and um, telehealth is the very broad scope of healthcare services compared to telemedicine. To understand that, we need to understand what is a community health center and also why it's important to Latinos and for Latinidad. And Latinos, they constitute one of the fastest growing minorities in the United States and health clinics are very hardcore, not only at the national and federal level, but at the um, local level. And basically, um, the health centers are, they do so many things, but also um, before the COVID-19 pandemic, but now they are focusing on contributing to efforts and, getting rid of the burden of um, hospitals because they are very cost-efficient, they are um, helping to a lot of people, especially that they don't have health insurance because they lost health insurance, and also um, the the distance. So La Clinica del Pueblo, it is located in Hydesville, and they offer a lot of services when it comes to substance abuse, medical services, mental health services. And during the COVID-19 pandemic, what they have been doing is that addressing a lot of the issues. Um, so, for example, translating documents into uh, Spanish and also in a culturally appropriate way. Some of the people that um, are working with patients in La Clinica, they mentioned that it's very difficult for them to get um, in contact with the patients because they're the Patients, they don't know how to use the technology. They don't have some time to access in in, in their houses. And also um, when it comes to being undocumented and they don't have health insurance, a lot of the undocumented patients, they have emphasized that they don't trust sometimes these networks. And even though that in the clinics, not only in La Clinica, but in other clinics, uh, they are doing the best that they can. But it's very difficult. Trying to work around the community is, um, it has been very challenged because they have to put everything, all the system from from scratch and, and all the systems that when it comes to they didn't have computers. They didn't have um, other systems set up for, for them that maybe hospitals with larger budgets amounts, they, they do have. Something that I think that it should be for future research is that how um, the COVID-19 um, has hit minorities and underserved groups. What has been the impact on community health clinics? For Latinos, health centers are kind of the core core where they go for health services.
2: What I think is really cool about your project is even moments when it's felt, you know, maybe frustrating or like, how do I, you know, get around this obstacle? Um, It seems to me that's usually the time when you're really getting, getting into the actual kind of creation of new knowledge. What did you learn, you know, from doing this project? I had never led
1: a team of an independent project where I was the source of money and the schedule and the Uh, objectives. And that was both really fun because I found out that I was decent at it, um, but also really terrifying because I have never had to have that that much responsibility before. And I constantly felt like I could have been doing more. What it takes to do a research project, how many people it takes to do a research project, how many moving pieces there are, Um, and how patient you also have to be with the process because it does change.
0: For me, it has been a collection of so many things. Um, The first one is to thinking about me as a Latina, as a Salvadorian as well, doing this research in a predominantly um, Latino population was very interesting because I am seen as an insider in so many aspects. I speak the language, I know the culture, I know like kind of a lot of the things inside but the fact that I just recently moved to the area that um, I am a college student something that it really hit about uh, La Clinica del Pueblo in a positive way was how they were trying to make you feel at home trying to connect you I learned to just trying to be um, a listener instead of um, judging or or asking questions that might lead to something that I really, it was in, in difficult or uncomfortable for them.
2: So that, that was another thing that I learned. Thinking about power and privilege um, in, in terms of doing research, what does that look like or mean to us?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, kind of connecting what um, Diana just touched on and that question, I think one of the things that hit me immediately was having to check myself constantly. Um, and this has been something that I've been learning at different po- periods throughout Um, The study, the amount of times that I've then realized that I was doing something with too narrow of a scope um, has always reminded me that 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 is my inherent bias, making me think that I am not biased. (laughs) Um, For example, like uh, in reading the transcripts that we've gotten from our fieldwork. uh, you know, so many of the questions that I ask about gender, you know, just do, do gender dynamics make your life harder? Do you ever feel like gender is is putting pressure on on you to act a certain way or to be a certain way? You know, um, do you think that women are are more likely to be victims of violence? The, the answer to the question may be yes, but, everyone's afraid of being a victim of violence because you're living in an area where there aren't enough police forces and there isn't enough uh, resources for job opportunities and people are unemployed and um, you know, often ending up in situations that they can't control. So gender is a dynamic and it is a thing that is contributing to the varying struggles that people are going through within the community and some of the triumphs, too. Um, But it is so multifaceted,
3: Dana. I was curious how the ways in which um, people you were working with both saw you, or your impression was that they saw you maybe as part of them and not part of them, in terms of on the one hand having a similar immigrant or ethnic or language or whatever background, but in in other ways um, being. Uh, you know, m- much more able to function at the sort of upper echelons of U.S. society that, you know, not just to understand how to use Zoom or do use telehealth or whatever, but to actually research it and enable. And uh, and then, of course, how you think that might have affected any of your research?
0: It was very interesting for me seeing the two aspects um, before for me as a patient, because I was just going there as a patient. But then when I went to the other clinic in in Hyattsville to the other side, um, I I just realized that there are so many hidden uh, nuances. And um, I remember that I sat down with one of the managers and I asked, Okay, how do I ask these questions? I did not ask questions about immigration or uh, questions about economic status because that it, it is something that is very difficult. It is It is, uh, we don't, it's very difficult to talk about that.
3: That it strikes me that paradoxically for the Bocam, uh, Winterfeld community and the people in Bokomoso, COVID might've actually been a blessing in disguise them versus you in terms of your project. I don't mean in general, insofar as the resources that would have that you would have got that would have gone in, you know, your airfare and your whatever we instead went into giving people um a source of income and a source of training and experience that they otherwise would not have got. And if that's correct, I think it sort of poses a really interesting question for, um, for funders like National or any funders, to what extent, you know, they have an obligation to the students who are being funded and who are going to be enriched by such experiences and to what extent they, they should have, have a, an obligation to the communities. Who, who actually might need it more.
1: Nashman was a huge part of me, kind of the way that I transformed this project. Yeah. First time that I submitted to have this project funded, it was rejected. But there were concerns about me entering a community that I didn't belong in um, wow. and having that kind of power relationship with um, people who were on the board and people who worked at the the centre. Um, and I worked really hard on on transforming um, the outcomes of the project and the structure of the process so that I would be integrating into the community more and spending more time with them and then um, putting more of the power of the project into the hands of the students who could then formulate their own questions and tell me what they wanted to be asked and what they didn't want to be asked and what made sense to them and what didn't. But that in and of itself was this limitation that I wasn't aware of. And it didn't occur to me that the way to make that the most equal partnership was to just not go. So you have people in the community doing that field work and asking those questions and having those conversations with one another because that would benefit the people in that community so much more than me going there. We have been able to exchange the kind of resources that we both needed. You know, I needed experience in this kind of work, and I needed an educational way to do it, and I needed a community to connect with that I cared about, that cared about me, um, that I could work with in that way. And Bocamoso and Winterveld have almost no formal Research published on them whatsoever. Um, so even though it's just an undergraduate project for me, um, and that, and I know that so much more research can be done on Bokamoso and on the um, community. Just have just starting the paper trail helps them secure more grants in the future. Helps mm-hmm. them, um, you know, uh, solidify their kind of presence as
2: a, an NGO, um, and uh, that's huge. To reflect back, one theme I heard both of you say and kind of ke- coming up in that question is the question of sustainability. Um, and so regardless per se of the details of the project, what is our imprint, what is being shared, and what's going to happen when we leave that space or that interview? And how can we leave something behind that's sustainable and that's useful for, for the community in, in whatever like formulation that may be for a project?
4: For those folks who did um, join us because you're interested in um, submitting a proposal for a NAP fellowship, we, we we really hope you do. And I do recommend that you um, schedule some time to meet with Jordana and, and talk through your ideas and, and kind of massage them a little bit. Um, and I would also, this year we happen to have two folks who did research projects, which was great, but I also want to be clear, this is any kind of scholarly work. So if your discipline doesn't do data collection and analysis, if if your discipline makes documentary films, if your discipline writes poetry, um that's scholarly work too. You don't have to gather data necessarily. Um, so I, I would really encourage everyone to give this give it a thought. and and I um, for those of you on the podcast, um if you're a faculty member, please help us. Um, by talking to your STAR students about some projects they might want to do as well. Never give up (laughs) because sometimes we
0: think that we don't deserve to be in in certain spaces, but never give up. I think that something that I have learned throughout the years and also working at the National Center is that reach to everybody that if you have something in your mind, just do it. Ask many friends, family members, thinking about your ideas and how you can make them and, and apply, apply to the fellowship. Yeah. <laughs>